This is Colin O'Keefe filling in for Bob Ambrosi on This Week in Legal Blogging. I am thrilled to be joined by uh, one of the best bloggers in our entire community. That would be Hillary Bricken of the Canna Law Blog and a partner at uh, Harris Bricken. Uh, she's joining us from Los Angeles. How's it going, Hillary? How are you hanging in there? I'm sure it's much warmer there than it is here up in Seattle. Uh, yeah, I'm doing well, Colin. Good to see you. I'm happy to be here. And, you know, Southern California, typically hot. Thankfully, I live by the coast, so it's not too bad, but I don't have air conditioning. So everybody pray for me. <laughs> I, I I know that feeling. I grew up basically my whole life. I've never had air conditioning any place that I've lived in, but also I've never lived any place like Los Angeles without air conditioning. Yeah. So that's a little bit different. Um well, we've got a lot to talk about today. We'd like to hear about your practice, hear about blogging. Uh, again, for those who haven't seen the blog, really a model for anybody publishing in a niche. And also at the same time, you know, kind of advocates a little bit for the industry as well. And I think you do an exceptional job there. But let's let's go all the way back. I mentioned off of it, you're you know you're not just a cannabis lawyer. You're basically the cannabis lawyer to some extent, but. How did that come to be? I mean, I, I don't know if anybody grows up going, I'm going to be a cannabis lawyer when I grow up. When, when was the time where you're thinking, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. Oh, yeah. It wasn't until I was, you know, a year into practice where this opportunity crossed my desk. I was a very young associate, basically taking work from the partners, buying for work from the partners, mainly in a litigation setting with some very obscure things like security interests and even maritime came across my desk, which is incredibly bizarre. But the firm itself still to this day, and it's been around for probably two plus decades now, is really known for occupying these bizarre emerging spaces that in the heart of a normal attorney would probably strike fear because the practice is built on kind of regulatory or legal quicksand. The other big practice is China. And if anything is more arbitrary or, you know, morally upsetting than maybe cannabis and emerging drugs, it's China. Um, So the firm already had the backbone to pursue these very kind of obscure areas. And really, literally what happened is that one of my colleagues, he's my partner, Dan Harris, um, he's one of the big authors at the China Law Blog, another popular blog site. He basically came to me as a young associate and said, okay, you've, you've got some legal chops. You're not a complete idiot. What do you think about going after the cannabis area in the state of Washington? And I'm originally from the Southeast. And you know this is about 10 years ago. Um, I said, what are you talking about? This is just a new concept to me. Florida would never do something like this. That's where I'm from. And he said, marijuana. And I said, I know what you're talking about. Um, What do you mean practice? And lo and behold, since 1998, Washington State had actually this robust area of law for medical cannabis. And what had happened when I came onto the scene as an attorney about maybe six months to a year later, it was super fast things had become incredibly commercialized in the state of Washington. And at that point in time, the legislature was about to reform the law to make it not only commercialized, but very corporate, government oversight, lots of taxes. I mean, it was going to become a full-fledged industry with a stroke of the pen of the legislature, but the feds intervened, and the governor at the time basically redlined out the law to give us a piece of Swiss cheese that amounted to the medical cannabis industry. And that was rife with opportunity to help create within the law, help these businesses try to comply. And when you're dealing with these older partners who don't want to take the risk or they're already steeped in their other practices, you know, why not put a fresh associate 
on the sacrificial um, mount to give it a shot. And I did. Uh, and thankfully for me, I'm probably a better salesperson than I am an attorney and was able to really develop that practice accordingly. So really it was kismet. Um, I am not a cannabis person. I don't use cannabis. My favorite drugs are alcohol and coffee. So this really did just happen to me. But at the end of the day, what it really is, it's a regulatory practice that's got business underpinnings, security underpinnings, intellectual properties involved. It's got a ton of different cross sections. So you can be a real attorney in the area, um, but the client development is challenging because of federal illegality and its emerging nature. And it, it's how interesting is it how much the space has evolved since you've just gotten started? I mean, obviously, even the stigma has changed to some extent and, you know, the prevalence has changed to some extent. But, hey, I know even just this year without naming names, uh, you know, we work with, you know, a number of law firms on cannabis blogs and we had one where you know, it was a large law firm and they came to us and said, hey, we got we got to take this down for a little bit. We got to take it down right now. We have this cannabis uh-huh. blog. It's got to come down right now. Um, oh, man. But I'm sure I'm still uh, there's got to still be, I mean, obviously things have changed to some extent, but there's got to be still a little bit of the challenges. But, you know, what's your take on how much things have changed in the last five, 10 years since you've started? Well, from my perspective, and you know, this is a practice that I do 100% of the time. I know it backwards and forwards um, in many different facets. I have some general practice areas like the business work, but I really focus now on corporate M&A and business governance. So I get to see under the skirt of many of these businesses. And since I got my start in Seattle in 2010, the entrepreneur, the cannabis entrepreneur, and their investment groups have become increasingly sophisticated. And in Washington state, it was a little different. It was a little more cottage. Um, Outsider investment really was not a concept because of residency requirements. But since coming to Los Angeles three years ago, where there are very few barriers to entry around the business concepts, we can have foreign direct investment. There's a lot of innovation. There are a lot of joint ventures as a result, lots of branding. It's just gotten way more sophisticated, I think, than anybody could have contemplated when these laws first went into effect really in the late 90s. So to me, it's only matured and legitimized. Are there still, you know, knuckleheads, fly-by-night people and hucksters? Of course, they're always going to exist, but they are increasingly marginalized in the face of legitimacy as more states opt out of prohibition. It surprises me that law firms are still being conservative in that way because that's kind of an old school move. Um, Makes me wonder who is coming into the firm or what clients they were trying to get or if there was a bar issue, but that's that's the anomaly now. Um, It's a very common place, right, for these large law firms, white shoe firms, to be advertising services within the space, even if it's ancillary, meaning support services or goods that are provided to the actual drug traffickers. It's it's pretty crazy to see uh, how prevalent, I mean, I you know, on the one hand, we have instances like, you know, where we temporarily got to hit pause on a blog, but on the other, I mean, we work with you know, not point in competition or anything like, but we work with Cypher Shaw and their blog title on this is The Blunt Truth. And it's just like, it's it's crazy how far things have come where it's just like the level of acceptance on it. But let's, you know, let's talk the blogging component. Um, obviously, Dan, Dan Harris had an immense level of success with the China blog blog and continues to do so. Um, how, you know, what was the thought behind pairing, uh, you know, a digital publication with you know, kind of the launch of a practice at the same time. I mean, what? how did the, the publication itself come to be? Was it really, hey, if we're going to start a practice, we have to start a blog? You know, how did the, the publication come to be? 
Not even. Nobody knew where this practice was going to go. Again, they put it in the hands of a young, dumb associate who really had no business acumen whatsoever. So I think it was, a, you know, a long shot or a moonshot. And when the client started to come, it was very clear that there was a huge lack of information and education within the industry from the legal perspective because these legitimate law firms were not interested. And the lawyers at the time that were mostly kind of skulking around and providing services were criminal defense attorneys who should not be giving, you know, really top-notch securities advice or corporate governance advice. What they do is totally fine, but it's a completely different animal. We all know that. And people were just totally ignorant. So basically, probably within a year of that practice gaining incredible momentum to the point where client development was daily and weekly signing people with fee agreements, which is highly unusual, we decided it's time for a blog. Um, and we used the China Law blog as a blueprint because it had been so successful. Why is it so successful? Because it speaks to lay people in a way that's digestible, right? These are not um, law review articles. And the cannabis industry was the same way with these incredibly protracted issues mired in conflict. And it was just the perfect setting to bring some education and also obviously, you know, some indirect marketing in a way that was actually, I think, educational and helpful. But we definitely use the China Law blog as a blueprint. And I don't think the goal was ever to birth the blog first and then have the practice. The practice really pushed the blog. That makes sense. And, you know, sp- speaking to that, I mean, I thought I-, I had I remember seeing this when it first launched way back in the day. I've watched it evolve. But you really hit the ground running as somebody writing content. Um and maybe it helped that you were just an associate at the time, weren't, you know, beaten down by legal alerts and briefs and all the traditional stuff where you have to write stuff. Um, but, you know, how was blogging at the start? How did you, you know, find your writing voice? What was the process like? Because at least from the outside, it seemed like, hey, you were a natural from day one. I think I was super annoyed in the beginning because it very quickly became apparent that I could not just engage in stream of consciousness, um, which was my ultimate desire, and or use this as a venting mechanism or a soapbox. Um, uh, you know, Dan Harris really was my my blogging mentor, and he had this intuitive nature to understand the importance of getting to the point. And if you ever go back, and I hope none of you do this um, ever, don't ever go back and look at those 2011, 2012 blog posts. They're wretched. Uh, You can really see the progress that we made with, I think, tailoring that content, not just to our client profile, but to regulators, other stakeholders in other industries, um, you name it. We really learned, I think, how to write in a more mature voice. But in the beginning, you know, we're not a big law firm. I didn't have a minimal billable requirement where I had to shove the blog to the back burner. I really got to think about these things. And in the beginning, it was just me. I was the only author. Um, And now we have multiple authors for every day of the week. And I think to be really amazing and have different perspectives, experts in different areas, it's got to become a multi-author blog. Um, And the China Law blog obviously is the same way. But in the beginning, it was a dumpster fire, um, like most of these things are. But you have to be able to throw meaningful time at it and attention and not just kick it as a throwaway because you're worshiping the altar of a partner Um, who's sucking up all your time. If that's the case, it's going to be an incredible uphill battle to stay consistent and stay committed. 
I mean, you say the early articles are not good, but I, I, you know, I jump back to 2012 even just now, and one of the titles is "Good Ads vs. Bad Ads." Is Pod Obscene talking about the advertising around it? And it looks like it's well written. It's got a good image in there, but you know, that reminds me of something that I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, you're really covering the entire industry from a legal perspective, you know, not just covering the laws around it. And as a result, you theoretically have to keep people up to date on issues that are just from all different areas of the law, uh, you know, whether it's intellectual property, advertising, business and regulatory, as you mentioned there, there's just so many different areas. You know, how has that approach to blogging worked for you in terms of just, hey, we're going to cover the industry first and then bring the practice areas to it versus, you know, theoretically, some people go, oh, I'm going to cover corporate commercial law. I'm going to cover employment law. You know, I've seen this work in the, the automotive space as well. But, you know, how does that work to just really attack an industry from every angle? It's incredibly difficult. Um, and you have to have enough gravitas, I think, to to be able to do that, to say, hey, I have something important to say, even though I may not be a full-blown expert in this area. The key is trends, because not everybody cares about certain aspects of the cannabis industry, some of which are incredibly stagnant. For example, employment law, to a certain degree, access to financial institutions. We can write a single blog post because of the nature of the industry that's literally good for a decade because there's been no movement. So at least that part has some mitigation to it. But we watch these trends. And if someone is competent in a given area, we're not saying, you know, write about your skill set or write about litigation generally, for example. We say, look at the trends that are out there. How are things evolving? And if it's something like litigation, which is hugely broad, right? I mean, that could range from land use to dealing with NIMBYs, IP disputes. We really ask the practitioner that's doing the piece, is this a trend that's important, right? And and, and why is it important? Um, and if it's something that's kind of a blip or an anomaly or we don't think that we have the expertise to really be talking about it because some, some of it's quite sophisticated, like the environmental lawsuits. That is a whole animal unto itself. We're not going to write about it and we're not going to attempt to write about it. So we write about the trends that are important and what we think is interesting. And those are really the best pieces. And what's funny is that when you mentioned those early ones about good ads and bad ads, the minute I wrote, um, I think it was a long time ago, a blog about comparing pot to pornography when it comes to content, advertising, access in the First Amendment, that got huge traction, huge traction. And it was actually interesting. Am I a First Amendment rights lawyer? Absolutely not. Um, but nobody cared because it was something that was super impactful, very cutting edge, and it was just interesting at the end of the day. So not everything has to push these chunky areas in which you are competent. You might want to write about what's actually interesting and that people care about. Yeah, that's something that I have to tell people all the time, particularly people at large law firms where they have tons of blogs and they're part of a machine that's producing content, which is remember to be proactive. Like you got to not just respond to litigation, regulation, and just wait for the next thing to come down, summarize it and get it out there. So right. to that, how do you identify those trends? How do you identify things to write about? Um, what does that process look like you know, for you and then for theoretically the editorial team that you have there? Well, for me personally, most of my content comes from my interactions with clients and other attorneys. And some of the best pieces I have ever done have been these lists. People love lists and mostly around scams, fraud, and pitfalls in the industry that are out there for the unwary. But a lot of that comes from firsthand experience in dealing with my clients, other attorneys, and also regulators. So I really borrow 
from firsthand experience. It's not theoretical or speculative. Um, the other things that I like are things that are interesting to me, like foreign direct investment in cannabis, what's happening in other countries. Um, and then, of course, everybody loves a funny trademark story when someone tries to get a stupid cannabis trademark for whatever lewd or lascivious thing. Um, I don't end up writing those pieces, but I encourage my IP colleagues to do that uh, because they're entertaining and they're interesting and they capture you know people's attention. I would say for the rest of the authors, they try to stick within their practice areas. So they're not going to go outside and necessarily write about something obscure unless they want to take the time to research it. And they're more than welcome to do that. And those are really kind of thoughtful pieces because it may not be an area in which they actually know what they're doing 100% of the time. But otherwise, they try to find the trends or even revisit old issues that maybe have evolved over time that are within their wheelhouse because those are the easiest things for them to write about. Absolutely. Yeah. I think everybody enjoys a good funny story about I just did a Google image search for candy bar name and you can find Ganja Joy and Snoggers oh, yeah. and everybody loves those funny uh, overlaps of, of tra- uh, trademark stuff. How, you know, with with the blog, how did you know when did you know that it was making a difference? Was there a time where you're like, we might have something here um, in the early days? You know, what did that look like? And you know, how long did it take for you to say, okay, this, you know, I, I better keep this going because we may have something here. I think the very first time where I saw some distinct ROI was when I was at a public speaking engagement in Spokane, Washington, of all places, which to some viewers, it may be like, great, who cares, Spokane. Um, it's not about Spokane. I was on stage with at least one major, major decision maker and influencer and regulator on what was then the Liquor Control Board. It's now the Liquor and Cannabis Board. And he was kind enough, and this was unprompted by me, completely unsolicited, to tell the crowd to check out one of the blog articles I had written about the top 10 red flags in the cannabis industry. This is like 2014. And I thought, wow, if a government, you know, government guy who you know has no ties to our firm there's no kind of relationship here is willing to put that out there as a beacon of information we are doing something incredibly right and then the most recent development was that um, we've showed up in a couple of law school textbooks citing to our articles which is just incredibly bizarre and I know these things become obsolete incredibly quickly but that was pretty cool so from then until now that's been the progression um, really literally from public service announcements to academia uh, those were the indicators where I knew you know, this this is more than just legal writing to try to drum up work. This is actually important, and we're seen as an authority in the space. And honestly, now we kind of have the obligation to write on some of these things as a leader. And and that's really where you want to be, um, getting work or not. Yeah, that's that's one of those very 2020 things. Not the the negative term that I think we all feel now, which is yeah, our, our cannabis law blog was cited in a law school textbook. That's just very futuristic, <laughs> you know. Feels like the future. Um, I know the you know when we spoke years ago, I remember hearing you know do you get calls as a result of the blog? Yes, but also sometimes they can be. I mean, not. Good. I mean, not not bad ones per se, but not good ones because some people are looking for a criminal defense attorney. They're looking for a different type of thing. Um, so, you know, I know you get those too, but also what's the engagement been like with the, 
you know, kind of the media side of things. What role has it played in uh, getting you out there with people, you know, whether it's a, you know, New York Times reporter or, you know, even all different levels? What's it looked like as far as positioning you as somebody who can, you know, be cited other places, not just for text, but also quotes, calls and that type of thing? Well, it's, it's had significant impact because you're putting your knowledge level out there and your thoughtfulness and your consideration around these issues. And many of these reporters and journalists, they don't have a deep background here. And they could be looking into incredibly serious issues around things like consumer protection, safety, quality assurance of products and these lawsuits that affect that. That's just one minor example. But they need a voice of authority and I think that the blog really promotes that. And not even just the blog, but when you do things like blog, you can take it to your social media, and that's where a lot of them see your content. They'll go and they'll use you as a resource. And you know, my personal opinion as a legal blogger is you should not care at all if you're not quoted as a source. That does not matter. What matters is the legitimacy of the relationship based on the validity of the information you're providing because you've researched it, you know it firsthand, and you've written about it. So I'm very happy when I see these pieces come out where I know I contributed, maybe I checked the facts or I gave legal context or I helped with an analysis. I don't care anymore at all if I do not see my name in print. It does not matter to me because it's more about the integrity of the relationship and the fact that they're going to come back again and again to the blog. Um, and not worry that I'm going to get offended that I didn't get a soundbite. And, you know, you mentioned social there a little bit. I took a, a look at your Twitter feed. I, f- I feel like I really uh, dropped the ball yesterday and I didn't have a single post on any of my socials about National Dog Day. And I love my dog very dearly. <laughs> so I hope she didn't didn't see that. I saw you did. Um, but you use Twitter pretty actively. You mix in your own personality there. You know, what advice do you have for other lawyers uh, as far as using you know, various social media entities. I, I love Twitter. I, I feel like it's just the place where I put my personality and my views out there. Some people use it in more deliberate ways. What's your approach to, to that type of thing? Well, number one, use it. Hello, welcome to the 21st and 22nd century of lawyering. People want to connect with you in this way. And whether you're you know, totally obstinate about it being work only, or you want to mix in some personality, um, that's your call, but you have to do what you're comfortable doing. Um, I very much enjoy Twitter. I like it. I've liked it for a long time. I have a fairly decent following for, you know, a pretty milk toast career as just generally an attorney. Um, you wouldn't think that people would care about following lawyers on Twitter per se, but it's been quite successful at the same time. I am not a big LinkedIn person. LinkedIn for cannabis is not a great playing field. There's a lot of, I'll just be frank, hacks on LinkedIn relative to cannabis, and it's a big waste of my time. I don't enjoy it. But find a platform that you like where your content is going to be complimentary and you're actually going to engage with it because I think the worst mistake you can make is to set up these accounts and then never use them. Um, I think that's actually worse. So at minimum, get the account you like, set up a reliable bot. I don't care. Um, But don't just set it up and then abandon it because I really do think that's worse from the marketing perspective. Yeah, it's definitely. And I I like, excuse me, what you say there is just just have fun with it. I mean, that's the big thing. I mean, find a platform that works and a platform that's enjoyable. I remember I got on Twitter just because I liked watching the NBA finals in 2009 with it felt like I was at a bar with sports writers watching them. So, you know, even if you start by using it for personal reasons, uh, it can make a huge difference there. Uh, speaking yeah. of advice for fellow lawyers, going back to the blog, you know, the Canada Law blog has evolved to be, you know, quite the outlet. You know, you've got a lot of authors on there. How do you keep it all organized? How do you keep it all running smoothly? What does it look like behind the scenes as far as, 
you know, you know, at the, the editorial process? Are there posts assigned? Is, you know, is it just communicating via Slack or Teams or what have you? What does that process look like for a multi-author blog? So it, we, I mean, we're a boutique law firm. We're not massive. This is really easy to manage. There are two partners. It's me and my colleague, Vince Tolosky, out of our Portland office. We really are the editors on this, on the content and who's doing what on a given day. We wanted to ensure that there was a marketing component to really every lawyer's job within the firm. It is not optional. It is part of their duties. Um, they're going to hear from us if they don't do it. And that's for their benefit to develop as attorneys in getting clients but also to remain steeped in these areas by staying on top, obviously, of the trends and the resulting legal analysis that comes with that. Um, Many of them are excited to do it. Other people, we have to continually push to do it, but they will relent because it is part of their job. Everybody gets a day of the week, and when they skip it or they miss it, we ask them, why did you do that? Better be a justifiable reason. Most of the time it is. Hardly anybody misses a day um, anymore because it's turned into quite the machine. But you know, coming up with ideas after so many years can be really difficult. And client problems tend to evolve into the same problem over time until something new happens in the law or something innovative occurs. So we oftentimes on Teams will discuss in a group, we saw this in the news, is it worth writing about or is it gonna sound too much like a news piece and not really anything that's useful to legal analysis? And the best ones, the champion ideas, make it to the top and we allocate them accordingly. So that's really how the process works at this point. Um, I don't envy anybody who's having to blog on their own time by themselves. It's incredibly difficult to do. If you can involve more people, obviously life's going to get easier if you can manage them accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and I mean, though you're in a boutique law firm, um, you know, even at, I, I could be way off, but even at a large law firm, I mean, you're broken up into practice groups and some practice groups are, of course, gigantic. But at the same time, I mean, I, I work with lawyers all the time where it's, hey, it's it's these 15 lawyers. That's not too many should be able to manage that. Um, speaking of just, you know, the whole, you know, f- you know, f- time you've been blogging, you know, how has it impacted your career as a lawyer going back, but then also even more interestingly, what do you want it to do going forward? I mean, you've damn near reached the pinnacle of the profession as far as being somebody who's, I know I'm, I feel it feels like I'm blowing smoke, but I mean, when somebody goes, hey, who's the, who's the best cannabis lawyer out there? I mean, you, you got the handle on Twitter, cannabis lawyer, which is, again, so perfect. Um, but, you know, what has it done going back? And, and, you know, what are your goals going forward as far as, you know, building the practice? So going back, and to be perfectly honest, it worried me because I didn't want to come off as an attorney who was a Shylock that could only market and had no skill sets whatsoever. I still worry about that sometimes because I have a lot of visibility. I do a lot of public speaking. And for a while I thought, man, people must think that this is all I do. I'm just like on the airport seminar circuit, blogging my brains out. Um, You know, how can she really be considered an expert? And I've... I've gotten over that, uh, mainly because blogging is one of the most legitimate marketing tools you can have as an attorney. It's better than any bus bench. It's better than any airport seminar, in my opinion, that's out there, um, unless it's obviously driven by an academic institution and it's truly, truly sophisticated. Um, because it's your stage, it's your platform, and you can get across you know, these very, very impactful ideas and analyses that you couldn't otherwise do in those particular settings. So I've, I've stopped worrying about 
having that kind of a reputation, but it did bother me in the beginning because it's a little antithema to have law firms market in this way. And a lot of law firms, and we've talked about this in the past, are fearful of giving away free advice without getting the return on the client. Um, and from a business perspective, I just don't think that that's a legitimate concern because no blog post is going to substitute for real life advice and guidance that's tailored to a particular situation. So going forward, I really want us to remain the infallible authority. I want people to have said to each other, I heard this, did you check the can of law blog today? Have they written about it? Um, to be gospel, that's really what I would very much appreciate. I don't know if that is reachable. Um, and as far as my Twitter handle goes, I have some heartburn over that one. Um, I think it's more funny than anything, but that's my personality, so I can I can live with it. It's it's funny you say that. I hopefully I'm not uh, talking out of school as my fiance listens in the other room. But to the point that you mentioned there, she worked for a a, a period of time at Leafly Startup here in Seattle, and and as part of the uh, employee orientation, they circulate the you know things that you know as employees you should be reading these things to stay up to date with the industry, and naturally. Can of law blogs right on there, and that's you know if you're right. operating in that space, you gotta stay stay up to with it. Um, lastly, you know winding it down, you know you're somebody again who's had an immense level of success with this. I feel like you have the exact right approach to blogging. If you were talking to somebody who's who's starting fresh in, in any practice area of law, they've said they've decided they want to they want to blog. They, you know they've made the decision they want to do it. What advice would you give them that would say, hey, no matter what, stick to this. No matter what, do that. Um, what advice would you give to a blogger who's just getting started? I really think the only way you're going to stick with it is if you write about what you enjoy, which is so difficult to do as an attorney because things can seem so overwhelming, soul-sucking. You don't know enough. Um, I've seen lawyers who are just completely paralyzed by this concept of blogging because they cannot write a law review article. That is not the attitude or the approach that you should have. This is not academic, right? This is driven from marketing to connect with your client constituency, right? And to explore ideas, right? And get, and get your visibility up. It doesn't have to be perfect, but in order to get to good, you have to actually enjoy what you're writing about. I know that sounds very cliche, um, and sometimes it is, but that's what's going to get you committed, and then you can get comfortable with exploring other areas, doing your own research, and putting out your own ideas, but don't start with that um, because you're going to fizzle out pretty quickly, and that you'll feel overwhelmed that it's not entirely as perfect as you could probably have it. So start with what you like, mature into maybe what's more difficult or sophisticated over time. Absolutely. In, in a previous episode of this show, somebody described a blog post should be almost like, you know, writing an email to a buddy. If you're writing a rant or something like that, that's that's all that it should be. Um, excellent. That's that's all that we've got for today. We'll be back next week. Bob Ambrosio will be back next week filling in the host chair. Uh, Hillary, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, if anybody hasn't checked it out, you know, whether you're in the industry or not, if you want to see a good example of a law blog, somebody who's doing it right, head to the Canada Law Blog at canalawblog.com. Hillary, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks, Colin. Appreciate it.